Welcome to the CrocCast, a podcast for peace studies conversations convened by the University of Notre Dame's Croc Institute for International Peace Studies. Today's episode is a recording of an August 20 event hosted by the Croc Institute. It features Beverly Tatum, President Emerita of Spelman College and author of the book, Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria and Other Conversations About Race? She's talking with David Anderson Hooker, Associate Professor of the Practice of Conflict Transformation and Peacebuilding at the Kroc Institute. Good afternoon and welcome to this uh, virtual event that features a conversation between Dr. Beverly Daniel Tatum, President Emerita of Spielman College, and Dr. David Anderson Hooker, Associate Professor of the Practice of uh, Conflict Transformation and Peacebuilding here at Notre Dame. My name is Asher Kaufman, and I'm the Director of the Kroc Institute for International Peace Studies. Last year, we launched at the Kroc Institute a new research and educational initiative on intersectionality, justice, and peace. Intersectional peacebuilding seeks to identify overlapping identities and cultivate the causes of and conditions for justice for those who suffer intersectional forms of domination and repression. The renewed movement for racial justice that has engulfed the United States since the killing of George Floyd and other African-Americans has made our intersectionality initiative all the more relevant. This event, which I'm honored to introduce, comes out of this initiative. Dr. Tatum is a clinical psychologist widely known for both her expertise on race relations and as a thought leader in higher education. She is the author of several books, including the best-selling Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria and Other Conversations About Race, and Can We Talk About Race and Other Conversations in an Era of School Resegregation. In conversation with her is Dr. Hooker, who is one of the leading faculty members at the Kroc Institute involved in our intersectionality and justice initiative through his teaching, research, and uh, practice. I look forward to listening to what is sure to be a thought-provoking conversation. Dr. Hooker, Dr. Tatum, the virtual floor is yours. Dr. Tatum, welcome. Wonderful to see you. Pleasure to be here, Dr. Hooker. Thank you very much (laughs) for inviting me. I want to start off. I've heard you speak, and I've heard a number of your TED presentations and other things like this. And one of the things that you do, uh, I think, very well is help set the stage for why and how conversations about race are often really difficult. And so I would love it if you would bring us into the space by setting a stage for why these conversations are as challenging as they are sometimes. Yes. Well, Let me start out by saying I'm a psychologist, and so I see things through the lens of psychology. And that's something I share with historians in the sense that I understand that our personal histories shape how we think about the world. And certainly that's true when we think about why it's so hard to talk about race, Mm -hmm. particularly in the context of the United States. And so I'm going to ask all the people who are listening to our conversation to just take a moment to imagine or remember, really, to remember an early race-related memory, maybe the earliest thing you can possibly think of. If we were all together, I would ask, how many of you have remembered something? And my experience is most people will raise their hands that they can quickly remember some experience from childhood, usually, 
that has to do with race or racism in some specific way. And if you ask what emotion is attached to that experience, most people can remember some feeling like fear, anger, sadness, confusion, embarrassment, shame, sometimes guilt. Of course, people will often sometimes say, not often, but sometimes, will say a feeling like love or friendship. So it's not always something unpleasant. But for most people, it is a feeling of discomfort of one kind or another. And if you ask then how many people were in childhood or what age were they when, at the time of the thing they remember, people will hold up fingers. They'll hold up a hand, five, six, seven, four, sometimes as young as three. But most people will have a childhood memory about the time they started school maybe kindergarten, first grade, second grade. And then the last question I like to ask is, go back to that moment, that feeling, that experience. Did you talk to anybody about it? Did you tell a teacher, talk to a parent? Most people will tell you they didn't. They didn't have a conversation with anyone. But if you know five-year-olds or six-year-olds or seven-year-olds, maybe your own children or younger siblings or kids you babysat for. One of the things you might remember is that six and seven-year-olds are pretty chatty. They don't filter much. They say what's on their minds. They tell you all kinds of things, sometimes family secrets that maybe they shouldn't be repeating. The <laughs> fact of the matter is they blurt out stuff all the time. So why is it that so many adults can go back to childhood and remember a race-related experience that caused discomfort, and yet at a stage in life when they usually were blurting things out, they will tell you, I didn't tell anyone. I didn't talk about it. And if you ask them why, they will usually say something like, I just knew I wasn't supposed to. I knew that the adults didn't want me to speak about this. Or sometimes the adults themselves, the parent or the teacher, were the source of the confusion. So who would you ask if the adult is the one who's causing the discomfort? I like people to think back to those situations because what it tells us is that we have a lot of experience with race or racism. Sometimes people think they don't, but the fact of the matter is everybody can go back to an early experience where they, most people can anyway, can go back to an early experience where clearly they saw something was not quite right. Something was going on. Maybe it had to do with name-calling or exclusion of someone or some other kind of unpleasant interaction. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it wasn't happening to you. Sometimes it was something you witnessed happening to somebody else. But we all have this history, and we can remember learning that we weren't supposed to talk about it. So fast forward. Now we're in college or graduate school or at work. Many years of experience of getting messages don't talk about this. This is the elephant in the room we're not supposed to mention. And that feeling that we're not supposed to talk about it is the first thing we have to overcome if we want to begin to really solve the problem of racism in our society. Because you can't solve a problem you can't talk about. Mm -hmm. It's interesting, even as I think about that, like the Kroc Institute prides itself on having a particularly global community. And so I wonder, for the people who are on the call, who are listening, who maybe 
didn't grow up in the United States. They imagine that they themselves don't have this same trajectory. I'm wondering how you might incorporate them into the conversation. Sure. Well, one of the things I find that when I'm speaking to an audience that includes um, a lot of students who've come from outside the U.S. or grew up somewhere else, that sometimes they have memories that may not be specifically race related, but they might be related to ethnicity or religion or caste or some other category that has defined the other in the culture they grew up in. So, you know, even in the United States, if you grow up in the Southern United States, maybe the other are Black people. But if you grow up in Oklahoma, maybe the other are the indigenous Native people of that community who were seen as the outsiders. Mm -hmm. So whether it's the Roma people in Eastern Europe or the Dalits in India, Mm -hmm. the fact of the matter is that sadly, Mm -hmm. every country has an outside group that has been targeted in some way by, because we all have grown up, I think this is a safe statement, we've all grown up in environments where there has been a hierarchy of human value, Mm -hmm. where some people are valued more highly than others. And if we broaden our understanding to think about those hierarchies here, we would call it a racial hierarchy. What we can see is that those hierarchies are often not supposed to be talked about. Mm -hmm. They're understood, but we don't make them visible. I actually imagine that there are a number of people coming from other communities or other contexts who may, because of the kind of the morphological, the way that we attach identity to looks and to color and things like that, people may come into the United States coming from a place where their caste or their, their place in the hierarchy was determined in a different way. And then they get invited into the racialized logic of the U.S. and have to learn this in order to manage themselves here. Yes. And sometimes when you ask the question, you know, what's your earliest race-related experience? Somebody might say 21, you know, when I came to the United States and someone projected an identity onto me that I didn't understand, put me in a category that didn't have meaning for me before I got here. That experience sometimes does happen later in life, Mm -hmm. but still it is an experience that sometimes people have trouble making sense of because there are a few places where they can really talk about it. So let's talk about it. (laughs) So now now that we got that out of the way, let's, let's do what we're not supposed to do. Let's talk about it. Why are all the black kids sitting together at the cafeteria? What are the central takeaway points that we ought to be paying attention to? from that. Originally, in 97, when you were writing and publishing, what were you noticing? So the title of my book is long, and I'm going to emphasize it for a moment. Why are all the Black kids sitting together in the cafeteria and other conversations about race? And the reason I want to tell the whole title is because when I wrote that book back in the 90s, of the first version, I was teaching a course on the psychology of racism at Mount Holyoke College in Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. Most, but not all of my students were white students. And they were asking lots of questions Mm -hmm. about what is racism. And my course was structured. 
this is going to be a long-winded answer to your question, but I'm going to get there. My course was structured in three parts. I call it what, so what, and now what. Sure. Okay. So the what was what is racism? How do we understand that? How do we understand how it operates in our society? The difference between prejudice and racism, what's anti-racism? All of that was part of our dialogue. Mm -hmm. But the so what was so what does it matter in terms of how we think about ourselves, our identities in the context of a race conscious society? And that's what racial identity development is all about. And I'll say a few words about that in a minute. But then the now what was, now what can we do about it? Now what do we do to interrupt the cycle of racism, to bring about change in our society? But if, we underst- if we're talking about the so what, the question, why are all the Black kids sitting together in the cafeteria, is really a so what question. It, it's a question about why, how do young people, adolescents of color, African-American or Black students in particular, respond to the racism in the environment as Mm. they come into their adolescence. One of the ways we respond to something like racism, a toxic environment that is signaling messages. If you're growing up as a young black person in the United States, part of that growing up experience, no matter where you live, is getting messages about your place in the hierarchy, Mm. right? You're getting those messages from the television. You're not Mm -hmm. represented on it. You're Mm -hmm. getting those messages from the things you hear people say, the jokes you hear people tell, the comments you hear people make. And as you are starting to enter your adolescence, you're asking questions like, who am I? Where do I belong in this society? How do I fit? And you might say, well, why in teenage years do you ask that question? It has everything to do with your brain, right? Mm -hmm. Your Mm -hmm. brain is still developing. When you're seven, you are thinking not in abstract terms about identity. Mm -hmm. You're thinking about your identity as, I like to play Nintendo. I'm tall. I have a brother. Very specific, concrete things. When you enter puberty, your body is changing and your brain is changing. And as your brain is changing, you can think more abstractly. We teach calculus in high school because the brain is able to think more abstractly. And part of that abstract thinking is to start asking questions like, who am I and where do I belong? Mm -hmm. And as you're getting the messages from the wider society that's telling you, you belong here, but not there. You can do these things, but not that. The police will stop you here. They won't bother you if you're white. Those are observations you're making, and you want to connect with other people who understand those experiences and are asking those same questions. Mm -hmm. So is it a surprise that the seven-year-olds who are in a racially mixed school and engage with each other across lines of difference, but when they are 15, they're Mm -hmm. sitting together in the cafeteria, it has everything to do with that adolescent development and coming in close contact with the racism of other people. One of the things that I think it's important to understand is that it's valuable to be able to connect. It's a source of support. It is not necessarily a bad thing that you're sitting together with peers having similar experiences. But what we need to ask, and I say this when I visit schools, is not who's sitting together in the cafeteria, but who's sitting together in the classroom. What's happening in the classroom that is helping students of different backgrounds 
connect across lines of difference in ways that might spill over into the cafeteria. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that Asher mentioned is just a little bit in the introduction, and I want to highlight an aspect of your kind of professional trajectory is before you were president, before you spent 13 years at Spelman as president, you were acting president at Mount Holyoke College. You've mm -hmm. been on the board of Smith College. You're on the board of Morehouse College. All of those are institutions that are educationally elite institutions, but they have the specific charge of creating space for full flourishing for people who have otherwise been marginalized or left out. Women weren't supposed to take on certain educational tasks. And so Mount Holyoke and Smith College prepare women for great service who are prepared for great service, right? At Spelman College, there's a whole way of moving beyond just being a missionary, but to be fully in charge, right? Morehouse is the same thing. What should a place like Notre Dame, the elite schools that like to think of themselves as inclusive, where would they even begin to look to notice how they create spaces of exclusion and what are the markers of unbelonging? Like, how do we even find that out if we want it to be better? Yes. Well, I think it's important to think about this question from an institutional point of view because it's critical for the students who are matriculating in terms of their educational experience. And by students, I mean all students, right? So I like to talk about what I call the ABCs. A is affirming identity. B is building community. Mm -hmm. C is cultivating leadership. And what does that mean? The A, affirming identity, in some ways really speaks to the necessity of an institution to think about how do we communicate to our students that they are part of our valued community? Mm -hmm. How do we affirm their identities? And I like to use the analogy of a photograph, a group photo. Let's imagine we gathered together 100 students and we put them on a stage and said, we're going to take a group photo. And when they got a copy of that photograph, each one of them got a copy, they're all going to do the same thing when they get their copy. The first thing they're going to do is look for themselves, sure, for the right? Everyone yeah, looks sure. for you. You look for yourself in that picture. Right. But let's imagine that. 10% of them, one out of every 10 students, has been digitally removed from the photo. Mm -hmm. So now we're looking at the photo. I get my copy. I'm looking, but I'm not there. Mm -hmm. I have been removed from it. And I'm going to wonder, what's wrong with that photo? I remember mm -hmm. standing on the stage. I mm -hmm. remember the flash going off. And yet I'm not documented in that picture. Mm -hmm. If it happened just once, I might think of it as a fluke. But if it happens right. a lot... I'm now not just saying what's wrong with the picture. I'm saying mm -hmm. what's wrong with me? I don't seem to belong here. They keep taking me out of the photo. Mm -hmm. And so I would wonder whether this is really a place I'm meant to be. Maybe I should mm -hmm. be someplace else. Maybe I don't belong in that class. And so the fact of the matter is just asking the question, who's missing from the picture, mm -hmm. is something that every administrator certainly 
faculty member, everyone who's part of creating this community should be saying, who's going to feel included? Who's going to feel left out? Mm -hmm. And we can answer that question pretty easily if we get in the habit of saying, who's missing from the picture? Because Mm -hmm. we're going to notice, there's some people missing from this photo. Mm -hmm. We need to make sure they get back in. Yeah, That's the A. But the B is about building community. Mm -hmm. And schools, elite institutions like Notre Dame, certainly spend a lot of time trying to enforce a sense or encourage, not enforce, Mm -hmm. but encourage a sense of belonging Mm -hmm. as part of the Notre Dame community, part Mm -hmm. of the Mount Holyoke community, part of the Spelman, Morehouse, Smith community. We want students to identify with their identity as a student in this community. And as an alum who has graduated from this community, Mm -hmm. stays connected, gives support, continues to feel a part of the community. And all the community building rituals we have, whether that's orientation or commencement and all the things that happen in between, are intended to help build that sense of community. But they only work if we've paid attention to the A. Mm -hmm. Taking a group photo is a community building activity. Mm -hmm. But people only want to participate in that pose if they're sure they're going to be in the picture, Mm -hmm. right? If the photographer says, I can't see you, people on the end, you either need to get closer or step away, right? Mm -hmm. The folks who don't believe they're going to be in the picture are stepping away all the time. Mm -hmm. So if we want people to really be engaged, we have to be paying attention to the A in order to get to the B. But also, we have to do the C, which is cultivate leadership. And Mm -hmm. what does it mean to be a leader in the 21st century? It means that you have to be able to engage effectively with people different from yourself. Because if you are coming of age or becoming a leader in this moment in history, Mm -hmm. it's a moment that includes a lot of people. Mm -hmm. I was born in 1954. In 1954 in the United States, 90% of the population was white, Mm -hmm. only 10% everybody else. All of the people of color we talk about today, African-American, Latinx, indigenous, people of color, Asian, all of those groups together only made up 10% of the U.S. population. Mm -hmm. If you are a student born in the late 90s, now in your 20s, you're part of a cohort that's closer to 50% white. Mm -hmm. If you only know how to deal with those folks, you're going to be at a great disadvantage when you're in the workplace. You're Mm -hmm. going to be at a great disadvantage trying to lead an organization that is diverse. Where have you been able to learn those skills? Not in your segregated neighborhood, Mm -hmm. not in your segregated school. Maybe Notre Dame is the most diverse place you've been in your lifetime. And so how can we take advantage of this population of folks in the same place for a period of time, four years as an undergraduate, however long as a graduate student, we need to create structures for those students to engage with one another in meaningful ways. And there are models. Mm -hmm. Michigan, for example, I always looked up the University of Michigan and the investment they made in intergroup dialogue as a pedagogical strategy Mm -hmm. where students can learn how to facilitate dialogues They can be in a structured context where they're talking about difficult topics, but in the safe guidelines of a classroom space Mm -hmm. with a facilitator who is going to make sure that the conversation stays productive, even when it's challenging. 
And the Michigan program, which goes back to the 80s, is now being exported to universities around the country. Graduate students who came out of Michigan establishing dialogue programs, the University of Massachusetts, Skidmore College, which is an undergraduate institution, but the first institution to offer a minor in intergroup dialogue, intergroup relations. There are lots of examples, but what we know from the research is that students who've had those experiences are more likely to live in diverse communities after college, more likely to be voters, more Mm -hmm. likely to be engaged in the democratic process, more likely to work in diverse workplaces, more likely to break the cycle of perpetuating the segregated society they grew up in. Mm -hmm. And so even as you were describing the affirming identity, building community, cultivating leadership process, I imagine that some people hear that as linear, as opposed to a spiraling, because if you take pictures at freshman orientation, and then take pictures in the advanced classes of the seniors, the composition, then you have to ask yourself, where along the way did we fail to build community and cultivate leadership that allows the identities to be affirmed throughout the life cycle of their participation in? Yes. Certainly from a retention point of view, we know that belonging, as one sense of belonging, is the best predictor mm-hmm. of persistence toward graduation. Mm-hmm. So if we're not successful in creating that sense of belonging for those students who are often marginalized, mm-hmm. the odds are they will be missing from the picture at graduation because yeah. they fell out along the way. Mm-hmm. So you said that students who participate in difficult dialogue or have the skill set around that then later in life, they involve themselves in more diverse communities and diverse workplaces and democratic process. They're able to engage with difficult dialogue. So I I wonder if you imagine if George Floyd and Derek Chauvin had had the opportunity to sit together as children at a cafeteria when they were young, if that would have made a difference or if there's still this great likelihood that we'd be in the midst of this current racial reckoning because of that kind of police community exchange? That's a very interesting way of asking the question because one could imagine that those two students, those two individuals could have been friends, right? Mm -hmm. They could have gone to the same school, been in the same classrooms, maybe played on the same sports team and developed a friendship. And so let's imagine that had happened. It's an interesting thing to think about. Mm -hmm. Would Derek have murdered George? Probably not. Mm -hmm. Would somebody else have murdered George? George is still not out of the woods, right? I mean, George could have found himself on the wrong side of a police interaction, even if Mm -hmm. he and Derek were best buddies. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. So that part of the challenge is thinking in the macro picture, the systemic Mm -hmm. concern around what does it mean to have so much state sponsored violence? Mm -hmm. Right. What does it mean to have black men and women, but black men in particular, seen as dangerous as Mm -hmm. that's the cultural stereotype? Mm -hmm. And what does it mean? for even young men who have grown up with economic privilege, Mm -hmm. right? Middle-class 
young Black men who have well-educated parents and have had access to high-quality education can still find themselves on the wrong side of a police interaction. That dilemma is not solved only mm-hmm. by creating opportunities for young people to grow up together. But to the extent that we are trying to minimize, to the extent that we're trying to eliminate that kind of racial hierarchy, that kind of stereotyping, to the extent that students and their parents get to know each other across lines of difference, they are more likely to be decision makers who can say, that's wrong. I grew up with people who were different from myself. I know that assuming that a group of folks, just because they look different from me, are dangerous is wrong. Mm. I'm not going to allow that kind of profiling in my police department. The Mm -hmm. police chief who has that understanding is going to lead differently. We've had integrated schools since 1954, right? We have not. That is the myth. So let me just talk about that mythology. So Brown versus Board of Education happened in 1954. School desegregation did not happen in 1954. Mm -hmm. We know that the court said, the Supreme Court said, with all deliberate speed, right? Make this happen with all deliberate speed, which basically meant slow. Go as slow as you want, right? Uh And that was what happened in a lot of places, right? Southern school districts, Mm -hmm. some of them chose to close rather than desegregate, right? right? Right. I mean, in Virginia, the public high school was closed for five years Mm -hmm. rather than desegregate. Mm -hmm. It wasn't, that didn't get resolved until the late 60s, early 70s, that, that issue. And how did it get resolved? During the tenure of Lyndon Johnson, He said to Southern communities, you have to get on board with this. You have to speed up or Mm -hmm. else we're taking away all your federal funding. Mm -hmm. Right. And so then in the 70s, there was a rapid process, a hurry up and get this done approach. Mm -hmm. And so schools did start to desegregate in the 70s. But then there were northern districts that said, You can't desegregate the schools in Detroit because it's mostly black people. Mm -hmm. If we want to desegregate in Detroit, we're going to have to get some white kids coming across school district lines. We're going to have to bus from those that ring of white suburbs surrounding Detroit in order to help the schools get to racial balance. And those white suburban parents said, I don't think so. Mm -hmm. My kid's not getting on a bus going into Detroit. That's not fair. And by that time, the president was Nixon, mm-hmm. President Nixon. And he had the opportunity to appoint four Supreme Court judges and selected judges who he knew were not in favor of school busing. Mm-hmm. And so when those cases came to the Supreme Court, the court said, suburban communities, you are right. It is not fair. We're not going to make you have to cross district lines. Mm-hmm. And if you can't get kids across district lines, you can't desegregate schools that are segregated because of neighborhood distribution. And that's just one example. But there Mm -hmm. are a bunch of court cases like that. Court Mm -hmm. cases where the school district said, you know what, we've been under court order for a long time. We have undone our segregated system. 
therefore we no longer need court supervision. Mm -hmm. Surely we can stop being supervised by the court. And the Supreme Court said this was a case involving Oklahoma in the 80s. The Supreme Court said, you're right, you've been working at this, we think you can now be left to your own devices. Well, within a matter of a year or two, once the court started supervising, the schools were segregated again, Mm -hmm. not by law, but Mm -hmm. by the pattern of busing. We're just going to have kids go to school in their own neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. Well, if the neighborhoods are segregated, the schools are segregated. Mm -hmm. So you can see that Brown, as transformative as it might have been, was chipped away by legal decisions such that today, in 2020, public schools are more segregated today than they were 30 years ago. Mm -hmm. So most white students are growing up in largely, if not entirely, white schools. Most Black and Latinx students are attending public schools that are so-called majority minority, Mm -hmm. where there are fewer than 10% white students. Mm -hmm. And that means that all of those students, when they come to a place like Notre Dame, are probably experiencing more diversity than they have in their school that they graduated from. Mm -hmm. Ironically, if you go to a private school, you might have attended a private school that's more diverse than your public, your local Mm -hmm. public school, because private schools are trying to diversify and they're drawing kids from multiple neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. And so it's possible that you've had a diverse school experience. But for most people, particularly if they're educated in the public schools, that's not what they're getting. Mm -hmm. The the other contributor to that lack of integrated experience were the Christian resistance academies that grew up yes. in early 60s. So now we we don't recognize them as something other than what they actually were, which was resistance to the notion, a theologized resistance to the notion of mixed communities. Yes. I do want to say one more thing. In some ways, it goes back to an earlier question which was about the kids sitting together in the cafeteria and how we create a sense of belonging and affirming Mm -hmm. of identity. We need to acknowledge that when Black students gather together with other Black students on a campus like Notre Dame, Mm -hmm. many people will see that as separating themselves from the campus Mm -hmm. and will see it perhaps as a problem. But research tells us that actually the students who are most engaged with a peer group like the Black Student Union or Mm -hmm. whatever it might be called are also the students who are most likely to be leaders in other sectors Mm -hmm. because they have a place where they get recharged. They get refueled from the stress of having to navigate a mostly white campus. Mm -hmm. And so in some ways, allowing students to gather together in the cafeteria increases the likelihood that they'll be leaders in the student government Mm -hmm. or increases the likelihood that they'll be involved in the campus yearbook or other kinds of activities where they are engaging with their peers of different backgrounds. Conversely, Mm -hmm. when white students gather together, like they do in Greek organizations, Mm -hmm. in sororities and fraternities, they are less likely to engage across lines of difference. Mm -hmm. They're more likely to stay holed up in those largely white social organizations and not expand beyond Mm -hmm. those boundaries. Mm -hmm. So the ironic thing is that people are always asking, why are the black kids sitting together in the cafeteria? Not questioning why are the white kids sitting together. 
but it's actually the white kids who are more likely to remain socially isolated mm -hmm. if they start out that way. Mm -hmm. This is a question that I have. There's also a question that's coming in from the chat line that's happening right now, and I'm hoping other people are sending in questions. But one of them is like, in this remote context where we're off and we're trying to do digital learning and these yes. virtual spaces and things like that. I know that you're happy that you left the academy before you had to manage some of this <laughs> stuff. But what why is this woman smiling? <laughs> <laughs> what suggestions do you have for faculty and graduate students like when you're organizing classes, are there intentional ways of doing your small groupings in class so yes. that you can allow these conversations to happen? Well, we know, I mean, of course, it is challenging. The virtual mode is challenging. But as we get more and more used to Zooming our way through the day, we know that you can create community. Five or six people on a screen can see each other, talk to each other, get to know each other. But it will be important for faculty members to think about how they're grouping people. It is important to the extent that you can, and sometimes you can't, right? Depends on the demographics in your classroom. But to the extent that you can create small groups that are diverse and not tokenized, mm -hmm. right? You don't want, if you've got a group of six, you've got five white students and one student of color, one black student, let's say, that's not the best dynamic, right? Mm -hmm. For the black student who's the only one. But it can be, but let's say you've got six students and if you can put two black students in there, now they are third of the population. That's mm -hmm. a critical mass. And the two black students are seen as individuals with differing points of view, mm -hmm. not as the black point of view, right? right? There's more opportunity to express individuality. But mm -hmm. a professor might say, well, I, you know, I've got a dozen students and there's only two black students in my class. Shouldn't I put one in one and one in the mm -hmm. other? Actually not. Right. It would be better to put mm -hmm. two in the one group and have the other group be all white. Mm -hmm. And the other group might say, well, mm -hmm. how can we experience diversity? Well, that's the challenge of the institution. Let's increase the numbers. Mm -hmm. but don't tokenize the numbers you've got because it will be a better learning experience if you can create critical mass. Broader question outside. I know you're a psychologist and so you work at often at the level of kind of individual identity formation and things like that. but. What are your thoughts about reparations? Where should we be playing? Where should that conversation be going these days? I think it's a really interesting question, and there's more and more discussion about it, right? What we know is mm -hmm. that reparations are due, right? I mean, mm -hmm. you can't know anything mm -hmm. about the history of the United States and not recognize the ways in which the wealth of the United States was built on the free land taken from the indigenous population and the free labor stolen from mm -hmm. the enslaved Africans, that the wealth of the nation was really built on cotton as a very valuable crop and sugarcane mm -hmm. and all of those things that were part of the building of the United States. And some people will say, well, that was a long time ago, except it wasn't that long ago mm -hmm. when we understand 12 generations of families impacted by that enslavement mm -hmm. and then the continued economic exploitation in the form of sharecropping mm -hmm. and then the continued exploitation in the form of 
differential wages, mm -hmm. and then the continued exploitation in terms of access to the resources. I always like to talk about the GI Bill, for mm -hmm. example. Many families today, many white families today, owe their middle-class status to the fact that the father in the family, and maybe the mother too, had the opportunity to go to college using GI benefits in the 50s, mm -hmm. had the opportunity post-World War II and the Korean War, had the opportunity to buy a house using a very low interest loan as a result of the VA benefits and the federally funded housing program that was part of the creation of suburbs in the 50s. And without realizing that those same benefits were being denied to Black GIs, for mm -hmm. example. Not on the basis of race per se, but because, I mean, there wasn't anything that said, don't let Black GIs go to school on the GI Bill, but there were institutions that were only white, right? Whites only institutions. Mm -hmm. And those benefits were administered locally, not mm -hmm. federally. Mm -hmm. So if you are returning to Mississippi or Alabama or, you know, Georgia from the war and you have to get your benefits from the local EA office in a Jim Crow era and people are saying, sorry, mm -hmm. not for you, or mm -hmm. sorry, UGA is not for you, whites mm -hmm. only, mm -hmm. you don't have access, the same access to those opportunities. Mm -hmm. Or... If you are living in New Jersey, New York, it's not just a Southern thing. Right. You are trying to get a loan to buy a house, but the house has to be new construction. And it ideally is in a suburb because mm -hmm. that's what the government is privileging. But mm -hmm. that suburb has been created with racial covenants saying black people can't live here. It's mm -hmm. in the deed that says it can't be sold to you. Mm -hmm. And the house that you need is in a black neighborhood. And that neighborhood has literally a red line around it mm -hmm. at the bank, meaning no loans going to that area. You can't get access to what were mm -hmm. billions of dollars of essentially relatively low interest money. Mm -hmm. All of that is part of people's recent histories. So how do we fix that? I mean, that's the challenge. You know, how do we, if we recognize the damage that was done, how do we, as a result of systematized systemic racism, how do we fix it? I think that is the challenge. Mm -hmm. Do we fix it at the individual level to say, this is the damage that was done to your family? Or do we fix it at a societal level saying, we know there's a whole group of people who've been denied access to education who've been denied access to economic opportunity, who've been denied access to wealth building opportunities. Mm -hmm. We are going to try to address that by creating more of those opportunities in the communities where the families have been most harmed. Mm -hmm. I see in my community of Atlanta are places where people are starting to think about it. They're not using the reparations word, but Certainly they, not. <laughs> they're not using the reparations word, but I see people saying we need to increase our investment in underinvested communities. How can mm -hmm. we do that? We need to increase access to high quality, low income or affordable housing. How can we do that? We need to create 
economic opportunity in places where we haven't created before? How can we do that? And I think that underlying the desire to do that is a recognition that it is owed, even mm-hmm. if we're not using the R word in our conversation. Mm-hmm. I always worry, though, when you have, depending on the lag between the investment in the community and the recreation of an economy, what happens is the community gets brighter and nicer and more expensive and people aren't making a living wage. And so then the communities often get lighter, brighter, more educated as they go. And then everybody else gets pushed out of these newly invested communities. And I think this issue of a living wage is probably the most important thing. I had a conversation just yesterday with a group of folks who are trying to figure out how to make the best difference in educational outcomes for pre-K through 12. And they were asking me, like, what's the one thing, if you could do one thing? And what I said is, if I could wave a magic wand and do one thing, what I would do is make sure everyone was earning a living wage. Mm -hmm. Because even if you create a wonderful education program, if the family can't afford to live in the neighborhood, they're not going to access that educational Mm -hmm. program. Even if you've got a wonderful educational program, if Mm -hmm. the kid is coming to school homeless, he's not Mm going to be able to take it in because Mm -hmm. of the worry about the basic survival. The kid who can't eat because of food insecurity, because the family doesn't make enough money, is not going to be able to take full advantage of that fabulous education program. Mm -hmm. At the end of the day, survival needs must be met. If we have families that can't survive because they're earning $7 an hour, if you're working around the clock at $7 an hour, you're still not going to be able to support yourself or your family. We're talking about $20,000, $30,000 a year, Mm -hmm. which most people, if they've got children and trying to provide housing, cannot survive on that. But that's Mm -hmm. what we're asking people to do. And I always say, if a job is worth doing, if I've got a job that I need somebody to do, they ought to be able to support themselves while they're doing mm-hmm. it. Paid yeah. Enough to- yeah. So I'm going to switch back. It feels like a reversal in our conversation, but it's kind of connected to what you just said, which is taking advantage of opportunities as they're created. So let's go back to the classroom. What happens when these opportunities for conversations about race and racialized experiences, the differential racialized experiences are created in a classroom? You've got some faculty who have done well and had their trajectory never actually have to personally wrestle with these questions. And then you've got students, a number of white students and other privileged students who don't necessarily have not had those experiences. And so when somebody is sharing, when a student, for instance, is sharing an experience of what feels like um, racialized victimization of some sort. Yes. If others don't have the experience, can't appreciate it, how do you avoid keeping them from being re-traumatized Because, you know, the lack of testimonial authority, like I've never had that experience. And so I don't believe what you're saying. It just doesn't make sense to me. How do you create a context in which students don't get re-traumatized by sharing 
their story to people who really don't have the experience? Well, I think that that's a great question. And I think that one of the ways we can anticipate this, right? Mm -hmm. If we know that this might happen, one of the things that we can do is let people know it might happen, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, Mm -hmm. to talk about at the beginning, I always found it as a, when I was a faculty member teaching about racism, Uh I found that it was helpful to name the problems in advance, to point out that this is a common thing, right? Mm -hmm. That sometimes it's hard for white people to hear about the experiences of people of color because one, it might make them feel guilty, two, it's uncomfortable, all these things. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And as a consequence, one of the responses is to question the validity of what you're hearing. Mm -hmm. One of the responses is to minimize the experience. One of the challenges we have in our classroom is to create a space where people can share their experiences without that kind of Mm re-traumatization. What would it require of the rest of us to listen carefully Mm -hmm. without judgment Mm -hmm. or to listen carefully without minimization Mm -hmm. or to appreciate that there are experiences that others have had that you have not Mm -hmm. and that you don't know how that feels, but we can empathize or create a sense of empathy through our careful listening. And that is actually one of the benefits of intergroup dialogue as a pedagogical strategy, mm-hmm. because dialogue, unlike debate, really privileges the listening. Mm-hmm. You're listening very carefully as opposed to trying to plan your next response. So anyway, guidelines for interaction can be set, but mm-hmm. also it's possible, again, and this requires perhaps pedagogical skill that a lot of faculty members haven't acquired because mm-hmm. they haven't taught in this way, breaking people up into small groups, giving students an opportunity to journal in the middle of the class, to do mm-hmm. some free writing, as opposed to responding immediately, to bring in voices that are not represented in the classroom, either through film or video or speakers or other things to expand the narratives Mm -hmm. that students have access to. All Mm -hmm. of these things are strategies that faculty can use, but it does take some practice. Right. It takes some practice. And so when I say that, some people will say, well, I haven't had the practice. I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it wrong. And we live in a time when one mistake and you're on social media and cancel culture, cancel culture, all of that. So we have to, I think, name that as a problem, maybe tell people to check the phones at the door. I don't know. Uh But to recognize that if we have to be perfect before we start, we will never start. Mm -hmm. And that is part of the challenge. You know, how can we create an environment where we allow for mistakes Mm -hmm. in the process of learning? So... The conversation that we're having now is inside of the Kroc Institute's emphasis on intersectional, uh, intersectionality of race and justice. Yes. And sometimes when people are trying to build a, an empathy or a, a sense of connection with other people's experience, they want to do comparative uh, concerns. And so yeah. the 
religiously marginalized or the class marginalization where there's a sense that I grew up poor, so I can't possibly have white privilege, or there's a way in which my gender dynamic. And so how do you do intersectional as opposed to competitive kinds of considerations when having these conversations? And when is it appropriate to do intersection? And when is it appropriate to kind of distinguish between these issues to emphasize one or the other? Yeah, I think it's a both and as opposed to an either or strategy, Uh right? So there are times when we might say, we're going to focus on racism, or we might say we're going to focus on the experience of gendered oppression, or we're going to focus on religious oppression, anti-Semitism and other forms mm-hmm. of religious oppression. But what I used to do when I was, and I do this in my writing, would be to set to acknowledge that we all have multiple identities. It's not like any one of us is just one thing. And I used to do this, actually. I would ask my students to fill in the following sentence. I am, fill in the blank. Mm -hmm. And to fill it in with as many different Mm -hmm. descriptors as they could think of in a 60-second window. Sure. So people will write all kinds of things. I am 18. I am tired. I'm hungry. I Mm -hmm. am African-American. I'm a woman. I'm a sister. Mm -hmm. I'm a husband. People write all kinds of things. But what tends to stand out is that the identities that put them in a subordinated position are the ones that get mentioned. Mm -hmm. The identities that are dominant identities Mm -hmm. are usually left out. So I will mention being female. I'll mention being African-American. I'll mention those are my two targeted identities. I might mention age as I get older, right? <laughs> um, and targeted by age, maybe. But I don't typically mention able-bodied. I don't typically mention middle class. I don't typically mention raised Christian in a Christian-dominated society. Those are not the first things that I mention. If we look at the subordinated identities, the dominant identities, in those places, I don't mention a cisgender or a heterosexual mm-hmm. first, right? Mm-hmm. Though both of those things are true. Mm-hmm. So if we recognize that we pay attention to the places where we feel targeted, we tend to be mm-hmm. less tuned in to the places where we are advantaged systematically, mm-hmm. then we can go back and forth between those identities, right? Mm-hmm. It's not just that you are targeted by this but you're also dominant in that. Mm -hmm. And how do those things intersect in your daily life? And where are you paying attention to somebody else's Mm -hmm. targeting? For a long time, earlier in my life, I would regularly recognize racism and how I was being impacted by racism, but not recognize my own heterosexist privilege, Mm -hmm. right? Today, I have a greater awareness of that only because I've I've learned more things. I've grown in that area. But it's easy to say to a white, it's easy for a person of color to say to a white person, how come you don't know just racism? Mm -hmm. But then to pause and say, or maybe have someone say, how come you haven't noticed your heterosexual privilege? Mm -hmm. Or how come you haven't noticed the anti-Semitism you grew up with in the society 
we're all breathing smog, as I like mm-hmm. to say. We are mm-hmm. surrounded by this lots of different particulates in that smog. Mm-hmm. And we're but we're all breathing it in. And if we acknowledge that, then we have to have some compassion for the learning process for those who are not in the categories that we are in. Father Michael Lapsley, South African priest who lost a hand and became blind in one eye from a mail bomb because he was white priest resisting apartheid in South Africa. He has a saying where he says, most people know when they're being oppressed, but very few feel when they are the oppressor. Yes. One of the strategies, I've got two kind of questions I want to push us towards and, and start moving us towards the, I guess, maybe three questions. One of the strategies that institutions use to address issues of race and racism is by hiring diverse administrative, particularly folks that are out front administrative staff. And and having been a president and a higher order administrator and a board member at several different institutions, I'm wondering your thoughts about when and how that strategy is helpful and when and how that strategy is distracting from what needs to be done to build community and culture? Well, it's definitely distracting when those folks who are, I'm going to call them hired to be the caretakers, right? So, you know, we've hired staff of color to take care of the students of color, Uh park them out on the edge of the campus and Uh forget about them, right? That's just sort of replicating what has already been. Yeah, yeah. Yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah. But bringing in voices that are not well represented is a good strategy. I mean, mm-hmm. we don't want to minimize the value of mm-hmm. bringing in some additional voices, but those voices need to be empowered. They need to have access to budget. They need to have access mm-hmm. to power. They need to be decision makers. Mm-hmm. The classic role of the chief diversity officer, if I use mm-hmm. that language. Where does the chief diversity officer sit? Does the chief diversity officer sit at the table with the other senior administrators, or is the chief diversity officer buried somewhere else, lower in the organization, doesn't have mm-hmm. access to power, doesn't have access to decision-making, doesn't mm-hmm. have access to a budget, doesn't have access to a staff? Where are the structural levers in the organization and who's pushing on them? Right? Sure. So the more power that mm-hmm. has been given to those new voices, the better it is. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. So two last questions. In your 2017 rewrite, it was a fairly substantial rewrite of why are all the black kids sitting together at the cafeteria and other conversations about race. It it was about 150 more pages. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the sections that I noticed that caught my attention that wasn't in the 97 was you offered an entire chapter on signs of hope and sites of progress. What are signs of hope and sites of progress that we ought to be paying attention to? Sure. Well, let me just start out by saying that I felt it was necessary to end in that way because I started by reflecting on what had happened in the 20 years between 1997 and 2017. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that was depressing. So if we look at that 20-year period, one of the things that Dr. King said in his last book, Mm -hmm. Where Do We Go From Here, Chaos or Community, Mm -hmm. was he observed, and he was right, 
after every period of social progress, particularly that has advanced the cause of African-American empowerment Mm -hmm. and liberation, after every period of that progress, there's been pushback against that progress. Another wonderful book that makes this plain is Carol Anderson's book, White Rage, in which she talks about every period, you know, whether it's after Reconstruction or after the Civil Rights era, Mm -hmm. after every period of forward motion, Mm-hmm. On the part of African Americans, there's been pushback against that progress. Right. And in that 97 to 2017 period, you can see pushback against affirmative action. You can see the erosion of voting rights. Mm-hmm. You can see the acceleration of mass incarceration. Mm-hmm. You can see the militarization you, of the police. Yes, 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 the yeah. militarization of the police. You can see the resegregation of public education. Mm-hmm. And so that sort of backward movement that I was documenting mm-hmm. in the opening of the book left me feeling like, gosh, I can't <laughs> end my book saying, you know, things got worse and that was it. That's what it is. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I did not want to do that. Uh-huh. And so, so I felt like we have to have some sense of how we can move forward again. Mm. And the reality is it is possible to move forward. King closes that 1968 book with the question, chaos or community? We know what chaos is looking like, Uh but there is the choice of building community. And how do we do that? And so I wanted to look for examples where people were making that choice. Mm -hmm. And so I lift up the example of intergroup dialogue as a choice that institutions Mm -hmm. are making to Mm -hmm. invest in community through that pedagogical strategy. But Mm -hmm. I found other examples. I found examples in Atlanta Mm -hmm. of something called the Atlanta Friendship Initiative, Mm -hmm. which was an intentional effort to build relationships across lines of difference in a way that might lead to greater empathy and that empathy, hopefully, to active Mm -hmm. anti-racist action, to look at examples of dialogue in communities the Winter Institute for Reconciliation mm-hmm. um, at the University of Mississippi. There's a very powerful example of a dialogue process taking place in a community that then led to the prosecution 40 years later mm-hmm. of a Klan mm-hmm. leader who was responsible for hate crimes. Mm-hmm. And that everyone knew he was responsible. Right. He'd never right. been prosecuted. And yet when the community started to talk to each other across lines of difference, they realized they could not move forward as a community mm-hmm. until that injustice had been corrected. And it was, which is a very inspiring story, I think, mm-hmm. in terms of people being willing to say, we can't continue to hide behind this lie. We right. have to correct it. So there are examples of ordinary people saying, mm-hmm. I'm not going to participate in this anymore. I'm going to right. do it. Right. So I know that even during this pandemic period where so many things are shut down, yes. you're still highly sought after as speaker, consultant, conversation partner with organizations, institutions, communities that are trying to do better. I know some of your work with the West Side Future Fund and the Tull Foundation are still very integral in working with communities that are trying to do better. I wonder if there is a question that you wished people would ask 
that they never seem to ask. Like this is like, if you all are really trying to get to the heart of it, what's the question that people really ought to be asking? What ought we be asking ourselves if we're trying to figure out how to construct spaces for full flourishing? And so tell us what the question is and then give us some idea, not of the answer, but of ways that we might approach pursuing the question. I am thinking about a book that I just recently read, and it's Isabel Wilkerson's book, Cast. I don't know if you've heard of it, but it is Cast, and the subtitle is The Origin of Our Discontent. And the cast discussion she talks about is essentially our society being built on these racial hierarchies and asking ourselves, what would it mean if we gave them up? What would it mean if we decided we didn't have to rank people? What would it mean if we created a society where we recognized everyone's fundamental humanity, their right to clean water, their right to a place where we could have excellent education, their right to economic opportunity. It seems like that would be very freeing, but I wonder how invested are we in maintaining those hierarchies? That's a question I think we have to ask ourselves. I'll just take the opportunity to thank you for this uh, really thought-provoking conversation that you have had with uh, David Hooker. It's been really interesting, fascinating, a lot of food for thought for all of us and for the many people that have joined us for this conversation. You've been listening to the CrocCast, Peace Studies Conversations convened by the University of Notre Dame's Croc Institute for International Peace Studies. You can find all episodes of the CrocCast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, and online at croc.nd.edu slash podcast. You can also rate and review our podcast, which will help more people find our show. For more updates and stories from the Croc Institute, follow us online on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks for listening.